Welcome to episode 260 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. <laughs> hey, brother. That was kind of a subdued hey, brother. It was like the it's kind of a nice hey, chill. Yeah, like we were about to open up like a jazz set or do yeah. slam poetry. Yeah. Well, we are going to hey, do that. Hey, brother. Didn't I tell you that we were going to do that? <laughs> Finally, we you all have been waiting for the slam poetry episode, and it turns <laughs> out it's going to be the episode about the omni attributes of God. Yes. That would be the most obnoxious way, probably, to talk about those attributes for a whole hour is if you talk about the attributes of God like this... Is that, is that slam poetry? <laughs> is that know. your version of slam poetry? <laughs> is slam poetry even a thing anymore? Oh, for sure. I think there's like still like, I think those who are into slam poetry know where to find it. It's yeah. happening. Yeah. It's out there somewhere. It's going to get you when you it least It might be underground. It. Oh, I wasn't expecting that. Like, okay, maybe it isn't that like Kane style, like yeah. this, this thing desires to master you. It's yeah. crouching at the door. Yeah. When you least expect it on your favorite reformed podcast, you're going to get some slam poetry. <laughs> well, before we just slam this whole episode, let's do a little affirmations and denials. So what are you affirming on this episode? So uh, October is widely known as uh, uh, pa- Pastor Appreciation Month, and particularly True. the second October in Sunday is usually Pastor Appreciation Day observed. Uh, or whatever you want to call it. So I'm just, I'm affirming my pastor, my pastor who, you know, better than I do, obviously, because it's your father, uh, is an amazing man. He's a a stellar pastor. He's humble. He's genuine. He's diligent in his studies and in his preaching. Um, and and even more, I know that he's diligent in his prayer for the congregation. So I'm affirming my pastor because he's great and I love him and he deserves to be recognized. Uh, but also just a little piggyback affirmation Everyone should mm-hmm. go affirm their pastor. Get them a little yes. gift. Pastors love yes. books. If they don't have Logos and you really want to bless them, you can go to logos.com slash reform brotherhood. So you could even buy him like an entry package. Uh, or if you use that uh, that link there, you can get a little discount still. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, we really can't thank our pastors enough because the, we don't often recognize the sacrifices they make and the sacrifices their family makes uh, in order for them to be able to do the work that God has called them to. So go and uh, thank your pastor for me. Tell him I said thank you, but you should also tell him you said thank you. (laughs) Tell him Tony sent you. (laughs) That's uh, the best pastor appreciation entry point ever. (laughs) Yeah, we always come back to this. Maybe some people are tired of hearing us say this thing about this time of year, but we don't care because... You really ought to be giving your pastors, one, you should be very kind to them. You should be, even the the Bible, Paul especially encourages us to basically, how can I translate this in Reformed Brotherhood translation? Don't be innate to your pastor. Yeah. And then beyond that, that's like the minimal standard expectation. Then beyond that, I don't think anybody really has a clear conception, even nor do I, who, again, I grew up with my father being a pastor, know just how difficult that job is and how discouraging it can be. So just yeah. coming with a word of encouragement, even if it's this time of year, even if you want to make it awkward and say, listen, these two guys I listened to in a podcast said, I really ought to thank you. This might come across as creepy. They're not going to think it's that way. 
And I know I've gone on record to say this. I want to say it one last time for like all the people in the back. Being a pastor is not a job that anybody should want. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it is. I call, I'm going to use the word office in the sense that like it is a vocational lifestyle. It's not a nine to five, obviously. It's not the kind of thing you can ever really pull yourself away from. Right. It's an investment of life and liberty. It's a giving up of a profound amount of freedom volitionally. And so when I say that nobody should be a pastor, those who have that inner call are the ones that are compelled to do this thing, which really is just a massively difficult and downright dirty and often discouraging job. It's yeah. glorious. And at the same time, it's just massively exhausting in every conceivable way. And so I really hope that people will reach out and appreciate their pastors. Because if your pastor is doing that job, it means God has called him, compelled him, and that he's lovingly taken on that mantle. And that is just something I so much admire. Yeah. And, you know, the Bible presents pastors as gifts to the church. It's a, mm. it's a special gift that the Lord has given to your particular congregation. Right and uh, although I'm sure your pastor is going to rightfully point and, and pass all of that glory and reverence that you might give him in, in your appreciation to God, uh, not showing proper appreciation to and for your pastor is actually not showing proper proper appreciation to God who gave you your pastor. So just take a, take a minute. I mean, it doesn't have to be anything fancy. Just a genuine, heartfelt thank you. And you know, if if you feel so inclined, a small gift um, to just show him concretely your appreciation. Uh, it really does. I, I can tell you from not just with my current pastor, who I, I know well, but other pastors that I've had, it really does go a long way towards uh, encouraging them and sort of building them up in their work and helping them to continue doing it to see that people actually see the work they're doing and that it is, it's affecting them and that it's touching them, that it's, that it's appreciated. That's great. That's a, that's a fantastic affirmation. I have this, I've often thought about this idea in my head, which will never work. But it's kind of like this. This is what I would like because, you know, sometimes I've been able to see the inside baseball just because of being in my own family. Right. But what I'd like is MTV had this show at one point, I'm not necessarily condoning the show, but it was, I think, called Scared Straight, where they took like troubled youths and they actually took them into like the prison system. And then these inmates spoke to them and basically just scared them yeah. straight away from all this potential troubled behavior that might end up in them, these young people being incarcerated. What can we do that be the equivalent of like, you get to see what it's like for a, just a day to be a pastor. And then you would be like, oh my word. <laughs> I don't know. I don't I, have anything to do with that. I don't think it's possible. I mean, I, like, I really don't think it's there's not. any way. I mean, I guess you could just like have pastors yell at you like they do with the scared straight. They just scream at you. <laughs> well, it's you. just to, to know the burden to yeah. know. And that's both a burden of teaching and serving of shepherding. It's just such a, a strangely multifaceted job that is not about skill set. It's about being qualified in the Lord, about being called into this. It's just difficult. Yeah. I don't know how else to say it. I'm just going to say the same things over and over. So I'm going to certainly come alongside your affirmation and encourage people to do the same. Nice. What are you affirming today? I'm trying to come off of what you just did because I was pretty great honestly so i'm gonna i'm gonna change gears to try to like equal that but in a slightly different way let me boast on my wife for just a second so she took her a day off on friday she had some time to take off and one of the things she decided to do on that day she scheduled ahead of time was to go and to give blood 
And I have an increasingly strong connection to this idea of giving blood because a couple of years ago, my wife needed a couple of emergency surgeries. And in the process of that, she lost a substantial amount of blood and was the recipient of several transfusions. And without hyperbole, that, of course, saved her life. And so she's also trying to give back. She's ever more connected to this idea of being able to share blood with others. And then when you think of all the spiritual connotations of this, like there is something beautiful in that. So I would say to people, if you can give blood, I would affirm that you go and try to do that thing. If you've never done it before, I'd say you look at it and try to go do some research, go and search for blood banks in your area. You of course could go to like the Red Red Cross, but I would actually encourage you to go and search, just Google search blood banks in your hometown I have no doubt you'll find several that are in need of blood. It's such an amazing gift to give. And I am so grateful for the people that gave blood so that my wife could receive it and be alive. So uh, I want to affirm everybody to go and do the same. If you're physically able to, you should look into it. Yeah. And this is especially important in rural areas where you may not pay, they may not have access to some of the national blood supply that, that you get right. through a place like Red Cross. So like, for example, I work for Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center, which is smack dab in the middle of nowhere, and we have to maintain our own blood bank. And so, you know, if you live in an area where you, you have a, a smaller, smallish hospital or you're, you're quite a ways from a larger metropolitan area, call your local hospital because there's a good chance that they do, they do maintain a local blood supply. And a lot of times uh, that blood supply is all they've got. So if the people in the area are not donating blood or if they are choosing to go through the Red Cross, which is a fine thing to do, but if if they're going through the Red Cross um, because it's a little bit easier, it takes a little bit less legwork, then a lot of times those local uh, medical centers don't have a sufficient blood uh, blood supply. And you know what? Like there's actually some other than the the good feelings and the fact that you're doing something good, there's some benefit to it too, because they do some, they do some uh, health screening typically on the blood. They make sure you're free of disease. They check your platelet counts and it wouldn't be the first time, you know, if, if they do find something, it wouldn't be the first time that somebody ended up finding a medical condition they weren't aware of because they were donating blood or doing some other sort of altruistic medical thing like that. So yeah, I think, I think that's great, especially this time of year, we're coming into the, into the winter season, uh, trauma rates tend to rise in the winter as people are out uh, doing winter things. And uh, the, the, the fact is that without a, a good blood supply, uh, a regional hospital or, or any hospital's ability to deliver good care and, and really life-saving care is diminished. So I think that's great. There is life in the blood, right? There is. There is. And if you're afraid of needles, then just suck it up and, and do it. It's really not that bad. <laughs> it's not too bad. No. And I would say if you've never done it before, kind of embrace it as a fun new adventure. It really is an amazing gift. I yeah. I wish as somebody who, again, has been through something where a loved one needed it, I wish I could hug the people that gave. Yeah. I really do. Because it, it has meant the world to me in that moment that my wife was cared for. And so... Yeah, turn it around. Try yeah. it out. Give it back. It's a, it's an amazing gift. And it's quick. It's real quick. Like I uh actually I I need to schedule my next donation. I I canceled mine because I was starting a new position, but I I need to get in there. Uh when I first went, I was used to do- like donating plasma, so I was expecting it to be like a multiple like a 45 minutes to an hour process. So I got all strapped in. I was all ready to go with a book and and by the time I got my book out and situated, like, all right, you're all set. And it was done. So, I mean, it's once you do the paperwork and you do your initial screening and stuff and you actually get in the chair, you're only you're only there for, you know, 15, 20 minutes most of the time. It's not a long process. 
Yeah, that's a good call. Actually, speaking of books, and because we got readers, and because as you're about to go and donate blood, you're going to sit there for just a little bit, not terribly long. But if you're like me, you're like, hey, why would I sit around giving blood when I can give blood and read at the same time? This seems like the amazing ultimate combination. But I'm not sure what I want to read. And it would be even better if I get some good reading for free. Any idea how we could make that happen, Tony? Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know. It, maybe we could do a contest of some sort and give away a book. So, we're horrible actors. We're terrible. So we, we are uh, continuing our new practice of giving away a book every month. And this month uh, on the docket is Expository Preaching, which is written by David Strain. Uh, it's in this series of little uh, Blessings of the Faith series that PNR is, is putting out. And uh, PNR has been gracious enough to provide us a copy of the book we gave away last month, which was the Covenantal Baptist uh, Baptism uh, book. And then this month is the expository preaching. And then they're also going to be providing next month's book, which we'll get there. But if you go to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest, there'll be a little module for you to uh, sign up and do a couple little actions and you can get uh, get some entries. Um, and then you can also go to reformbrother.com slash 260, which is going to be the entry for this episode. You'll find the same module in either place. And, you know, it's simple. Just go to Facebook, go to Twitter, do this, do that. It's it's nothing intrusive. We don't need you to, like, send us your firstborn or we don't need you to, like, put blood in a bag and send us the blood. Don't do that. <laughs> Please no. Uh, just go, like, <laughs> click on this button and go to Facebook. But, yeah, we're excited to be giving away books. And, and most of the ability to give away books uh, this month is provided by PNR, but other, other times it's provided by generous listeners who've, who've you know, found it in their budgets to support us and give us a little bit uh, to help keep the lights on and, and do some other things. The Reform Brotherhood is brought to you by listeners like you. Yes. Uh, I feel like there should be some sort of sound sound like punch there, but <laughs> this isn't distilling theology, so we, we don't do that. We don't do that. Yes. Total low budget is, yep. is what we got here, but yep. we do, of course, appreciate all those who give to this wonderful thing that we got going on. So it's time for everybody's favorite part of this podcast, I think, which is denials. What are you denying against? So after last week, I feel like I needed just like a good, relaxed, low-key denial. Uh, so I'm just denying anywhere that is not New England in the fall. So okay, it's, it's, <laughs> it, it, is, it is an un- indisputable fact that New England is the most beautiful place on the planet uh, during the months of September, October, and November. And we have hit peak, I think, as we speak. Uh, I, I did a little bit of driving this weekend to go run some errands. And it's like painfully beautiful at times. So if you if you live in New England, I know that like it can be tempting to forget how blessed we are to live in a place where the world literally becomes like a Monet painting in, at a certain time of the year. But uh, take some time, get outside. And, you know, if you live somewhere else, it's probably still somewhat pretty for you to go outside at this time of year when the leaves are changing. But it's it's not it's not New England. So uh, I'm affirming New England fall. I guess I'm denying anywhere else that's new, not New England in the fall. But yeah, it's just another way to look and marvel at God's beauty. Like he didn't have to design it where the world becomes extra beautiful in the fall. He didn't have to do that. You know, they could have just turned immediately brown and fallen off the tree or I don't know, they could have become invisible and fall. They could have dissolved in the air. And I mean, there's all sorts of ways it could have happened, but God saw fit to bless his people and just to bless all people with this beautiful transition of seasons in certain parts of the world. Yeah, that's right on. It's a strange thing that in the fall, like every leaf becomes a flower. There is something about the beauty. It's not just the changing of the season or the temperature itself going down, but there is something about 
God's, and we're going to get to this, I think, I mean, this just this amazing power of God to create the world in such a way that it brings us joy and pleasure in ways that seem innate and intrinsic. You know, we almost can't explain why we take beauty in things dying yeah. and being more colorful. But even in that, there is something about the gospel that we see presented and represented. And so we have a God who's more faithful than the changing of seasons. And yet even in the faithfulness of a changing season, we see that he is steadfast. We see this beauty in death. We see this almost resurrection, this moving through all of these stages of life. And what an amazing thing that God would do that in the weather, right? Yeah. Like it almost seems like weather is mundane. We talk about weather is the ultimate small talk. And yet in that we see God's faithfulness, his love toward us, his mercy, his grace, and his living and essential kindness. So yeah, almost like that seems like a small denial, but it's actually a really big thing. I don't know how people in like Arizona do it. Cause like, yeah. I love the changing of the seasons. Like I, I know I'm sure they're like, yeah, but it's warm here and it's a dry heat. That's great. I just love the changing of the seasons. So for me, my heart definitely resonates with you and with that generally. Yeah. And you know, like we talk about how like we can't explain the beauty of nature, but like literally we can't explain the, the, what, the reason why leaves turn certain colors and when they turn, like it's, it's still one of those things that we don't have a good scientific understanding of exactly what the mechanism is that causes the leaves to change and why some leaves change one color. And even like, you know, like it used to be like, Oh, well, I'm assuming it's like the kind of tree at all. But like, even then, like sometimes it turns orange, sometimes it's red, sometimes it's yellow. Um, you know, they don't know what triggers the change. They don't know what causes certain regions to be more. I mean, there's just all sorts of question marks and it just does point again to just the glory of God and like his power. And and we'll, we'll talk about some of those subjects as we get into the omnis here. Right on. When you said it. that every leaf is a flower, I thought you were going to break into some slam poetry there. <laughs> every, every leaf, leaf. is a flower <laughs> and every flower <laughs> is a bullet, but every bullet, I, I, I don't know where I'm going with that. That's my slam poetry right there. <laughs> that was pretty good. You kind of undertook like a New York or Southern New Jersey accent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that. That's all oh, I got. That's, that's all I got. I don't want to offend, offend any other people groups by trying to do any more accents. That's real good. I figure I New it. Yorkers are, are, are already always offended anyways, so I can't offend that's them more. Enough. So, yeah. It's fair enough. It's a way of life. So what are you denying today, Jesse? All right, so you're going to want to timestamp this sucker. Uh -oh. So I have a, a denial, and uh, let me, before I have to give a quick word of preface before I say this. One, everybody can timestamp this if you want to. Two, uh, I know that I'm, uh, people are going to put me on blast for this, which is fine. I'm a mixed bag of lots of different, like, theological, you know, ideas and convictions. And um, so, well, let me just, you want me to say it? Here. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to give you like uh, four words. I'm denying against credo baptism. Oh man. Is this happening? It's more or less happening. Oh my so goodness. What most people don't know is that you and I have been processing and talking about this for a very, very long time, probably longer than two people should ever really talk about this. And something that I've been processing and people have been tracking with us, like Lord's Supper, like a lot of the sacraments. And I've actually for years been really delving into some of these things with an increasing amount of depth for me, at least, and processing them. And, you know, at some point when you're reading and you're studying and you're talking and you're praying, there comes a point where you got to make a decision, right? I mean, like, you're like, I can read more articles and hear more of the same things. I can hear more speeches. I can watch more debates. 
And so I have been increasingly convicted over time. So what the, what the funny thing is, this comes as shocking to maybe a lot of people, but it's been incremental as you and I have yeah. talked about this, right? It's been very incremental. And so here's what I'd say to like my Baptist brothers and sisters, like nobody here, especially me, is like forsaking the fact that, of course, they believe in believers' baptism. I do think that generally speaking, the most cogent and complete argument for baptism lies in the sense of covenantal baptism. I I do think that is really the stronger expression, the stronger representation of what the scripture teaches. And part of this for me in this journey was the entry point really was understanding how we define what baptism really is. And I know that sounds like kind of cliche, but I think that again, that definition of what it really means and represents what it accomplishes is in my estimation stronger in the covenantal sense than it is in the strict believer sense. You and I have done an episode on that. We talked about kind of all the argumentation back and forth, but uh, yeah, I think the time has come. So wow. if you were to ask me today, would, if I had a child, would I baptize that child? Get ready. The answer is yes. Oh man. I'm... And uh, part of, now again, some of this shouldn't be a surprise because I believe I've also gone on record as saying, listen, loved ones, dedication is infant baptism without water. I've said that before, right? Yeah, you have. You have so multiple times. Hopefully people were seeing, we're reading the tea leaves, so to speak there and seeing that like this conviction that we all have, even Baptists, to say that we want to make sure that our children are marked, so to speak, set apart, that they're included in the benefits, that they're part of the covenant people. I do think that the strongest argumentation for that is represented in baptism, which is an extension or in the new covenant of, sorry, extension of from the old covenant of circumcision into the new covenant of baptism. So I chose to deny against the credo baptism as to be partly shocking, of course, because it's just more fun this way, (laughs) but also because that, that is where I'm at. Like, again, nobody's saying here, I I think you and I would also both agree that like, we don't deny against like believers baptism, like you come into the church and God arrests your heart and you're converted. Yes. Like you, you baptize all manner of adult believers as they confess Jesus Christ as Lord, but the richness and the fullness of baptism, I think is best and most appropriately expressed in its covenantal form. And that's the thing that has won me over as I've looked through the scriptures and tried to assess what my conviction ought to be in this manner. So at the risk of derailing the whole podcast yeah. now. Not just like the episode, like the entire podcast. Yes. I wanted like, to let you know. And and people should know, you had no idea I, did I was not know this. say that. No. Right? Uh, I, it's funny because when we started, before we started the episode, I made a little joke. <laughs> Jesse had mentioned he read the book we gave away last week, and I made a little joke. I was like, oh, are you a pedo-baptist now? And he kind of shrugged at me, and I was like, huh, that's weird. So yeah, I'm, this, I'm hearing this for the first time with the rest of you folks. I, I'm, I'm not like drastically shocked just because Jesse and I talk about this stuff not only every week on the podcast, but we talk about theological stuff off, out, outside of the podcast. And uh, disclaimer, Jesse's not advocating divination. Please don't try to read tea leaves. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, it was not uh, not a super surprising turn of events, but a little bit of a shocking way to introduce this new uh, state of affairs to me. So uh, congratulations. I don't, I don't know what the rights. <laughs> is there like a Hallmark card for this? I, I don't know. I don't know. 
I don't I'm know. sure there is a like Presbyterian bookstore or yeah. Presbyterian libraries and churches. They must have something like, thanks for coming over to the light side. And, and I do, I say this somewhat in jest, like, yeah. you know, we, you and I've talked about, like, this is something that we ought to have good discussion on. I think, and I can't point to actually any one resource in particular that was really helpful to me. Yeah. That was like, you know, the, oh my gosh, I read this thing and it like, this was what broke the straw on the camel's back. Like this, this is everything. It's not that. In fact, the book we just gave away, I would encourage everybody to read the covenantal baptism. And I want to read it because we were giving it away so I could speak to it. It is a really helpful little tiny volume. It's by Jason Halopoulos, right? Is that his name? Halopoulos. Greeky McGreekerson. Jesse Kanopoulos, whatever. So like it's <laughs> Jesse it's Katsopoulos. Super... I like that. Katsopoulos. That's, that's a deep, is, yeah. deep, deep cut right there. Yes. Oh, thank you. You know, I try to go deep sometimes. So that was really helpful. If you're looking for a primer, I think that's a really good expression, but there's lots of stuff that I've been reading and, and trying to pray through. So I think if you want a place to start, he's actually not bad because yeah. if you are from the, the Baptist mindset, which, which I was, and again, I'm not saying like, listen, we got to like, you know, this is not like a Presbyterian podcast. Like, you know, again, my like affiliation, the churches I attend, like <laughs> not the churches, the church I attend, I'm not like <laughs> double dipping here. That you know they don't don't share many of these same convictions, but this is what makes this wonderful as part of like God's people is yeah. that we've talked about before. Like wherever you are is in some ways where God intended you to be, and as you sort out your theology, you ought to be having good conversation with your leaders if your convictions start to change from where you're at. Or all this should be processed together yeah. with a fair amount of of grieving if you're going to leave or want to leave, and all that stuff like we said before. So take a look at that, that book, but, uh, it, it's a really great, uh, introduction to all this stuff. I think you'll be challenged. Is that fair? Like, yeah, I, and I, I think we all yet, should be challenged. So, yeah. yeah. And I you know, we I, all should be challenged. I just want to throw this out there too, is I, I've seen a phenomena online, especially, but not, not just online, just of this phenomena that happens where people come into a new sort of new theological perspective, like super quickly. And, mm. Uh, that, that's always made me a little uneasy because it feels like, especially with more significant doctrines like this, um, it really should take a long time. It's a serious decision to make to, and it is a decision, right? You're, you're right. Like your, your views change sort of pre-volitionally, but at some right. point you have to acknowledge that your views have changed and actually embrace this new, this new belief that you hold. But I, I respect the level of study and of, time that you took to do that. And I think it's a good model for us all to look at, to say, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to, we should be evaluating our own belief systems. We should be evaluating our own theological statements and systems. And, and part of that is that we should not be doing so quickly, right? This, right. Th this picture of someone being tossed to and fro on, on the waves in scripture, it has to do with false doctrine, but there is also this element. Some people are tossed to and fro, to and fro on the waves of, of like two competing. Obviously, both views can't be true, but in terms of like biblical fidelity, both are faithful to their understanding of the Bible. Neither right. one of this is exactly. false doctrine. Exactly. There are people that get tossed about between orthodox camps of theology, and and that always makes me a little nervous. So I, I don't know how to transition out of this into our episode, except to just <laughs> just put the car in park, take a second, and then just turn around and go the other direction. So yeah, every everybody can let that breathe for a second. Here's my fear, though, and I want to like preempt this real quick because I know some people might be quick to people are gonna have one or two reactions. Either you know my Baptist brothers, this is gonna be like, oh my word, yeah, <laughs> and they're gonna want to you know jokingly put me on blast on social media, like don't do that, loved ones. And for those that are like more of the pedo Baptist 
you know, profession are going to be like, finally, like, this yeah. is great. Don't do that either. Like this, listen, like, I like what you said, Tony is like, we need to be constantly trying to understand what these things mean. And they, that's, I am the most, I'm going to use the word convert, but that's the only one I have the word I have to explain this. I'm the most reluctant convert to this. Yeah. Like I came kicking and screaming dragging myself all the way, you know, dead body weight. And so I almost come reluctantly to this conclusion, but it's a conclusion that I do feel convicted about. And uh, it was time to make a decision after wrestling through all of this. Yeah. So with that said, keep it up, loved ones. Keep always be reforming, always be looking, always be, you know, processing and always be reading and studying and asking the spirit to enlighten and lead you into all truth. So speaking of being led into all truth, nice. we'd like to try to drop some more truth today. And we're continuing this whole epic, never ending, always amazing series on theology proper by talking about the omni stuff. Yes. Yeah. So, so far in our, our, you know, ongoing until we hang up the microphone series about theology, um, we've already covered kind of what normally might be called prolegomena, but we really kind of phrased it and, and sort of couched it in this understanding of the way we have to do theology in light of, of the reality of what and who God is, right? God is this entirely other, being who only we can only ever talk about in these analogical senses, these these creature flavored, creature creaturely phrased languages. It's like wearing tinted glasses. Even when you look at something and that is a certain color, if you're wearing tinted glasses, it's always going to be flavored by that color, tinted by that color. And then we went on to kind of talk about this cluster of attributes called classical theism. Right. So we're talking predominantly about things like simplicity and then how that sort of plays out into immutability. Um, we didn't talk about it. But it plays out into impassibility. There's all these different correlated um, doctrines and and flowing out of that is now this discussion. We, we talked about how those those are kind of the bedrock foundational things. God is entirely other. We only talk about him analogically. That's sort of one of the, the foundation stones of classical theism. And then these other sort of complex of doctrines. Um, that we talked about last week, and and that is another foundation stone. And now you start to go up the, the pyramid a little bit, up the tower a little bit, and you build on those foundations. And so we come to the omni-attributes. And one of the things that's, that I think it's missed about the omni-attributes, right? We're used, to, we're used to saying things like infinite or incomprehensible or impassable or immutable. We recognize that I-N or I-M prefix there is a negation. What we don't recognize is that when we're talking about the omni attributes, we're actually still talking in, in in ways of negation. So even though we're saying that God is everywhere present, and we're talking about all om, omnipresent or everywhere powerful, and we're talking about omnipotent, what we're really saying is that God is nowhere absent, or that God nowhere lacks power, or God nowhere lacks knowledge. Right? right? We're not actually saying anything positively about God because we can't. What we're saying is we're describing, we're trying to get some picture of, of who and what God is by trying to describe what he's not. It'd be kind of like if mm -hmm. you had um, you had a void in front of you and you could kind of see the shape of the void. I, I'm doing things with my hands as though you can see that. It's but great. like if, if you had you had a void in front of you, you had like an, an outline of something and all you could see was the outline, you would get a sense of the shape of that thing. 
but you're not actually seeing the thing itself. You're seeing you're seeing kind of the boundaries of it, and that tells you true things about it, but it's not the fullness of that thing. So when we talk about the omni-attributes, we also have to recognize that none of the omni-attributes can really be considered apart from the others. And I, I think that's probably where we'll spend most of our time is teasing some of that out. But when we talk about God's omnipresence, we're saying God is nowhere absent. We're not necessarily... We're not denying that God is everywhere present, but what we're really getting at is that God doesn't doesn't have the same kind of interaction with space that creatures do. He's he's not constrained by space. He's not limited by space. He's not even really in a space. Space and God are are like they totally interact in a different way or don't interact at all is probably more accurate. Well, when we get to things like omnipotence, if we don't consider God to be interacting with or or in or around space, however we however we construct that in all spaces, then we can't say he's om, omnipresent or omnipotent. Because if he's not in a space or if he's not present in a space, then he, or I should say, if he's absent from a space, he can't be potent in that space. So we, we, right. we need to understand how these interact, because if we don't, then what we end up is we, we end up, even if we think that God is somehow f- present in every point in space, we still end up with an understanding of God that's probably closer to something like Greek mythology, where Zeus is is. Zeus is kind of omnipresent. He can be anywhere he wants and he's sort of all seeing, but he's limited in space. He still only can be in one place at one time, even though he may know what's going on in another place or he could be in another place. He's still limited in that he's he's constrained by space the same way that creatures are constrained by space. He just has the ability to occupy more of it. That's not that's precisely not what we're saying about God. So this is a, an important kind of stone in the the tower or in the wall or the building, however you want to phrase that. It's an important stone in the overall theology proper to really get how these omnis function and how they function and interact with each other and how they interrelate with each other. Yeah, that's right on. And not only do we need to understand how they all kind of coalesce, come together in contrarieties, but basically the light of these omni attributes as they're connected and linked together and are in, again in consummate harmony, that light, the rays that shine forth illuminate the Christian life with practical theology for living. And so in each of these things, sometimes we have a sense to a tendency to understand or study these things as abstractions, because again, they either express like a negative by, in your example, the void or a positive in trying to use language in such a way to communicate something about God that of course is incommunicable. But the bottom line is we can kind of treat these like they're in a Petri dish. Like, okay, let's look at God's omniscience. Let's look at God's omni, I'm going to say it this way, omnipotence. You ever see, heard it used that way? What? Omnipotent? Omnipotent? Yeah. Yeah. That's how I usually say it when I'm trying to like emphasize what it actually means. Emphasize. Yeah. Yeah. I love that actually. So like we can have a tendency to almost like hold these up in the lab. We put them under the microscope, we study them for a little bit and then we walk away from them as if like, these are things that you, of course they uniquely belong to God, but have a little impact on our lives. We need to kind of move away from that as well. So the whole purpose of having this conversation is to bring all of these things together in this kind of holistic perspective, but to also see well, what are the rays of a light that shine forth from these characteristics into our own lives right. that provide instruction, a richness in the Christian life and a greater sense of God's presence and his purpose for us and our obedience to them. In other words, what do these things mean for me on Monday morning? We, yeah. want, we want to get there as well. Yeah. So, I always find that it's helpful to start with the concept of omnipresence or uh, um, 
God's sometimes ubiquity is another way that it's phrased, um, especially with our Lutheran brothers and sisters. Um, because I think it's it's the most straightforward for us to understand, and it helps us to kind of get our head around as much as we can what we're actually talking about when we use this omnipreface for a couple of different attributes. And so when we talk about God's omnipresence, um, as I said, what we're, what we're not saying is that God is simply present in every point in space, right? Right. Uh, you know, the, the dedication to the temple in Israel in Solomon's day, that we know that God is not constrained. He doesn't live in temples made by human hands. And the point of that is to say that even though... Uh, even though the temple under Solomon's era uh, was supposed to be this unique place where the presence of God kind of was focused or was, was localized, he was precisely in that prayer saying that God is not, it's not as though God is simply in this place. And so we should not, uh, we should not conceptualize omnipresence as though God has some sort of extension in space, meaning that like he fills, he fills space in sort of a crass way. Um, sometimes you'll hear people, I think in a little bit misguided way, but they'll say that God is not everywhere. Well, I get what they're good at getting at. They're trying to say, they're trying to sort of break this relationship between space and God's presence. Right. But omnipresence is not saying God is not present everywhere. It's almost like we're trying, and again, this shouldn't be surprising. Go back to our our prolegomena section in this little series here. It shouldn't be surprising that we struggle to try to explain what we're talking about here because we're using creaturely, we have to use the language of space to describe how God is not not to be conceived of in terms of space. So we're, we're in this sort of circular thing where we have to kind of dance around the reality of what we're saying because we simply can't get any closer. It's probably closer to say something along the lines of God is not absent from any particular place. Right. And so so that's a slight difference than saying God is present in all places. It means God is present in all places, but it also it also pushes us past that a little bit to say that it's not simply a matter of crass presence. It's not simply a matter of like localized presence. God is not localized to any particular point in space. He's he's not localized anywhere. Because localization or, or direct presence is a category that doesn't apply to God. That said, he's not absent from any place. So he's not illocal or unlocal from any place, but he's not local in any place either. And so so what we're trying to get at with this omnipotent or omnipresent attribute is really to say that space as a category is a creaturely category. And so God is not limited to, restricted by, or somehow how caused to be in any sense by the category of space. And that goes back to our discussion of simplicity and aseity, all of those things we talked about last episode. If we were to say that God is localized in every place in space, which is how some Christian theologians have have defined this concept, then what we're doing is we're, we're unintentionally, subtly, basically defining God's being in relation to space. Space has now given God some right. sort of definition and has made God yes. to be God in a particular way because of his relation to space. Instead, what classical theists, and I, when I say classical theists, I just mean historic Christian theism. What historic Christian theism is saying is that space as a category does not do anything to God's being. 
It doesn't do anything to God's being. It doesn't limit him. It doesn't define him. It doesn't constrain him. It doesn't expand him. It doesn't do anything. And so although it, it does not have a connection point with his being, nevertheless, God is still not absent from any of it. And that's really what we need to get at when we're talking about omnipot- or om- omnipresence. So there's going to be a lot of that, folks. Just push past it. <laughs> just context clues. Just figure out which one I'm talking about based on what I'm saying. Don't try to listen to what I'm actually, the words I'm actually using. That's great. We could actually even make it, if this is possible, more mind bending. So to take that and draw it out a little bit more, there can be no limit to God's presence, which you've already said, that's the whole omnipresent part, of course, but his infinitude basically surrounds the finite creation and contains it. So there's no place beyond him for anything to be. So like God is our environment as like the sea is to the fish or the air is to the bird. And where I think this connects with some really practical, like shoe leather type of theology is we shouldn't be tempted to hold the belief that God is present within his universe in some kind of isolation. So it has all these practical implications in many areas of theological thought. And I think it bears directly, for instance, just in one, just to give people an example, in certain, like what we'd say, religious problems, kind of like theoretically, for instance, like the nature of the world, which you and I spoke about before. So Thinking men throughout like all of history, all generations, almost every age and culture have been concerned with this question of, well, what kind of world is this? Like, is it, is a, to your point about like God is not defined or constrained or even in some way compartmentalized or categorized, or even his character is better explained by physical space is a material world running by itself or is it a spiritual world or is it run by unseen powers or does like this stream of existence begin and end with itself or is its source higher up and you know further back up in the heavens christian theology is really the only one that claims to have an answer to these questions it's rooted in this omnipresence it declares positively that the world is spiritual it originated in spirit flows out of spirit is spiritual in essence and is meaningless apart from the spirit that inhabits it right i think that's kind of what we're driving at here so like the divine the doctrine of omnipresence personalizes then like your and my man's relation to the universe in which we find ourselves this is really the great central truth that gives meaning to all truths and imparts some supreme value to our little lives God is present near us, next to us, and this God sees us and knows us through and through, and it's represented in his omnipresence. Yeah. And, you know, that's also just a um, good—it's a good nuance for us to add and then a good transition point is omnipresent and spiritual are not synonyms, right? Right. The angels are spiritual. They're pure spirit. But they're not omnipresent, right? We we don't we don't exactly fully understand w- how it is that angels interact with space. That's why that the question "How many angels can dance on the head of a pin?" is actually a really good question. It's thrown out there like this, "Ha ha, throw it away, worthless question." But it actually really gets at something important: is that we don't we don't necessarily understand what the relationship is between sort of spiritual space and physical space, material space. There is a relationship, though, right? Angels are at this location and not that location. They're not, they're localized spirits. They're not omnipresent the way God is. They may be able to move from location to location quickly or instantaneously. I, I suppose we could even conceive of angels that may be in multiple locations at the same time because they're not constrained by the physical limitations of space, the way that physical creatures are, but they still are localized. So also our soul, while we're in the body, is localized to our body. 
right? My soul, although Athanasius uh, and some of the other early church fathers conceived of things like sight as like an extension of your soul, that, that sight is actually your soul going out and experiencing something and bringing that experience back to your body. I think that's a little out there, but um, our soul is, is localized in the same space as our body is. Maybe right. not coextensively. I don't, I don't know the, the physical mechanism of the soul, but um, so even then, or after after death, our soul goes to a place, and it's in this place and not that place. So we should we should remember just because something is spiritual does does not mean it is not interacting with space. It simply means that it's not constrained in the same sense as physical things are with physical space. And that does kind of lead us like your, your kind of reflection there leads us pretty, pretty quickly into the next omni attribute, which is omniscience, right? So I want to read from, from this is kind of like the classic text for both omniscience and omni, omnipresence. It's Psalm 139. It says, Lord, you've searched me and know me. You know, when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar, you search out my path and my laying down and you're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall shall hold me. So you see it in that text. There's this seamless transition in, in David's mind here between uh, between God's ability to know uh, everything, to know his inner thoughts from afar, all of this stuff, to see his paths, to understand his words, all of this knowledge that God seems to have seamlessly transitions into God's presence or, or lack of absence in all places. So when right. we talk about the omnis, they blurred, they blurred the distinctions. A simple way to sort of think about this was omniscience. God, God, um, a person cannot know something unless they are present with that thing in some, in some sense, unless that thing is made present to them in the space that they exist in, they cannot know it. So sometimes that thing is made present to you through descriptions and words. And so you sort of the physical presence that got that description sort of transfers that knowledge to you, but it still requires this movement in, in space and time. We're probably not going to get to time, but in space and time, transitioning this knowledge through space and time to you, right? We can picture this clearly in the fact that like knowledge is primarily transmitted in our day and age electronically, but that's still electrons whipping across wires across the sea from a server somewhere into your eye, you know, your eye holes on the screen, right? It's not, it's not this ethereal knowledge just, just transmits instantaneously from place to place In, in other days, older days, it was the physical transmission of book. If someone wanted to learn something from you and you didn't have time to sit and tell them, you had to write it down and hand them a book for them to read. There's a physical transmission of knowledge. So this this concept that knowledge cannot exist apart from movement of that knowledge through space and time is something that we may not think about too much, but when we do think about it, it's actually very intuitive. When we right. talk about God's omniscience, and now we've interconnected it with his omnipresence, what we're doing is we're actually removing that need for God's knowledge to interact with or exist anywhere within space and time. God is not dependent on space because he doesn't interact with and is not constrained with space. So also his knowledge is not limited by time or space or anything else for that matter. And so these attributes are all interconnected in ways that, again, they, they, 
may sound arcane and a little counterintuitive, but actually when you start to think about it, they actually start to just sort of make sense how they're related to each other. Yeah, that's right on. I think it might be helpful maybe for people to think of knowledge often as as light of things being illuminated. So yeah. when we talk about God being omniscient, we're speaking of like this perfect knowledge of God, but everything that is knowable or can be known, God does already know. And I actually, if I had to pick like a favorite attribute and compartmentalize it, it would be this one. And I think anybody that's ever tried to invest themselves in learning something has something here to come before God with in immense worship. Because if we think of this knowledge of God as a light, then his pure light is so bright that there is nothing that is unintelligible to him, which means that he is like the one who brings knowledge into our lives on every single subject, not just like theological topics, not just the scriptures, but any knowledge that we actually have is a great gift from God. In some ways, his omniscience is in my estimation, a profound amount of common grace on all of mankind. So we sometimes think of knowledge as like giving assent to facts. If I know certain things, that's what I consider knowledge. But even beyond that, ahead of that, that's a downstream impact. The upstream impact is to say, who allows you to even understand what those things mean? And anybody who struggled to learn anything can attest to the fact that sometimes you may just look at something and just having a book in front of you or hearing a lecture, having somebody explain it to you doesn't mean that you have knowledge of that thing. There's something that seems beyond our grasp. God is the arbiter or the storehouse of all knowledge. That's why Hebrews, the author of Hebrews writes in chapter four, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before his eyes of him to whom we must give account. The Lord is a God of knowledge and by him the actions are weighed. So God has a full idea of cognizance of all things, all things, And one of my favorite passages in the scriptures on this topic is actually in Daniel. When Daniel is chosen among the youth in Israel to come into basically the classroom of Babylon to learn things, what we find is that the scriptures tell us that God gave him great knowledge in all these Babylonian things, including their own history, their own philosophy. And he rose to prominence because God blessed him in his knowledge. Now, I think most of us would be like, if we actually pay attention to that, we'd say like, well, that's like secular knowledge. Yeah. Why would God's blessing and giving knowledge yeah. and among these secular topics? All knowledge belongs to God. And I often think when I'm studying something difficult as I am now, as I'm preparing for this great test that I have to take, I think sometimes I step back and I'm struggling and it's over my head and I think, God knows this. And so I take this page out of A.W. Tozer's book uh, where he says that when he studied Shakespeare, which you know, many would say, well, that's not you know, explicitly or overtly like theological. Tozer says he studied Shakespeare on his knees, asking God to illuminate and to bring knowledge into his life and understanding. And as God has given everybody different turns of mind, which itself is a reflection of his own great diversity and knowledge. So also should we be going to God and saying, God, I don't understand this math. God, I don't understand this philosophy. God, I don't understand this car repair. God, I don't understand this medical procedure. God, I, I want to learn this. And you are the one who contains all knowledge. Would you come and illuminate because you were the one that gives the breath and the scope of all things knowable. You have all this stuff. Would you illuminate it for me? So I really, really resonate with this because I think part of somebody challenged me recently and said, you know, like sometimes studying 
is taking dominion over the created world. That is like trying to expand what you know yeah. for God's service and for his glory is a way in some ways of pushing back those boundaries. And yet we need God to help us with that. So the omniscience is like just beautiful gift to us because we know at the end of the day, no matter what we're working on, no matter what we're after, God knows. And that's also all like, you know, possible contingencies, probabilistic realities. God knows these things. But also, I mean, haven't you been in a place where you're just like, man, I'm really struggling with this concept. And to go on your knees before God and say, God, would you help me to understand that gift, that kind of worshiping, that kind of savior, having that kind of access to a savior who is brilliant and genius just makes me want to run through a wall. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) I can see it in your eyes. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. And, and you know, it, it's funny because I, I didn't keep reading in Psalm 139, but if I had, we would have gotten to verse 11. It says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light, uh, a yes. light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day for darkness is as light with you. So like this, this metaphor of knowledge and light being related to each other and that God, God is not able to be overcome by darkness, mean, meaning in this context, God's, God's knowledge is not able to be dimmed by the darkness of ignorance. That was like poetry slam right there. Uh, boom. Boom. Um, like that's a biblical concept. And the other thing we, we have to remember, and we, we, we have to keep coming back to this point again and again and again and again, is the difference between God and the creature especially on these attributes that have some overlap. Most people would not put the omnis in the category of communicable attributes. This is actually right. part of the reason I don't love the communicable incommunicable distinction, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point, but is because there are these, there are these attributes that sort of like skirt the line that I've looked at from one angle or are, are communicable communicable and have looked at another angle or not. So, and in this case, like, yeah, knowledge is a, a common feature that God has knowledge, man has knowledge. So maybe it's communicable, but God knows things in such a different way that it's not as though our knowledge is actually has any point of reference to describe God's knowledge. So right. just like with omnipresence, we're not just saying that God is in more points of space than a cre- any given creature is. So with knowledge, with omni omniscience, we're also not saying that God simply has more points of knowledge than any given creature, or even all of the points of knowledge. What we're saying is just as just as we say that with omnipresence, that all of the created order, that God's infinity actually extends around the entirety of the created order, in, in, in infinitely so, God's knowledge actually not only is it contain all of the points of knowledge in all of creation throughout all of time, but actually God's interaction with knowledge is fundamentally different. And all of this roots back to this idea of divine simplicity, right? Mm -hmm. God's knowledge is not distinct from his very being. So for God to know point A, B, or C is actually just to know himself. That's not to say, not to overly identify any given point of knowledge or any given fact with God's being. It's to say that God's knowledge of reality is his very self. So for God to know that Tony drank an apple cider while he was podcasting today, it seems like a silly example and it is a silly example, but God's knowledge of that is not distinct from God himself. If God somehow, if we conceive of a God who has that knowledge but that knowledge could somehow be subtracted from him and he somehow would still be God, then we're not talking about the God of the Bible. 
And that's the key right. is, is God's knowledge is so intimately bound up with his very self that it is in fact his very self. And so, so just as omnipresence means that God's nature is such that there is no possibility of God being absent at any place in space, any point in space or time. So also God's essence is such that the very idea that he may lack knowledge of anything simply is just incoherent with what we confess God to be. So that, that kind of brings us, and, and we'll kind of talk about this one a little quicker because we're coming up on the end of the episode here, but that now sort of shifts us to this last of the main omni um, attributes, which, which is om, omnipotence or omnipotence is how I like to say it when I'm explaining this, because now, now what we do is we take that, those two realities and now we apply that to God's ability to affect his will. Right? right. Omnipotence is really to say that God nowhere lacks the ability to actualize his will. Whereas the creature, we lack all sorts of abilities to actualize our will. There's all sorts of things we might desire to do or have a will to do that we in fact can't do. I might will to fly. I might will to hold my breath for 30 minutes underwater, but the fact is that I'm not capable of doing that. And so my creaturely limitations make it so there are certain things that even if I were to will to do them, I simply cannot do. What God's omnipotence means is that there is nothing that constrains God's will to actualize any state of affair that he so desires. And, and again, we see that this connects with his omnipresence, right? It connects with his omniscience. There's, there's no place in space or time where God is absent. And so there's no place in space or time where God cannot actualize his will. If I wanted to make it the case that in 1982, the Minnesota Twins won the World Series, even if I was able to do that, I, would, I didn't exist at the time. So, so I had no capacity prior to it, 1983 to affect any state of affairs. So when we talk about the, the reality of God's omnipotence, what we're saying in part is that because God is not constrained by time or space, we can kind of subsume that all under the rubric of omnip omnipresence. God is present in all time and all spaces. He's not absent from any time or space. We can sort of connect that to his omniscience, that he has full knowledge of all things and all knowledge is fundamental to God. Now we can say that God's ability or God's godness makes it such that nothing can prevent him from accomplishing whatsoever he desires. And that means that we can say something that might sound a little bit shocking, and that is there are some things that God cannot do. Oh, and I like the way you said that because it's good to emphasize that we're talking about God's omnipotence, meaning that he's able to do all his holy will. Right. So God cannot, as we talk about with simplicity, will or do anything that would deny his own character. Then he ceases to be God, right? right. So like that saves us from like foolish arguments that some people might present to us about like, well, can God do this thing or can God do that thing? Right. This is why the definition of omnipotence is stated in terms of God's ability to do all his holy will. It is not absolutely everything that God is able to do, but everything that is consistent with his character. And so in, in addition to that, what this also means then is that like there are passages in the scripture that indicate that God's power is infinite and that he is therefore not limited to doing only what he has actually done either. So like, in fact, God is able to do more than he actually does. Like that's why, for example, John the Baptist says in Matthew chapter three, God is able from these stones, like to raise up children from Abraham. Right. He didn't do it, but he could do it. I mean, God is the one who alone decrees right. whatever he pleases. He literally could have destroyed Israel and raised up a great nation from Moses, but he didn't do it. So it's not just, we're, we just can't put any kind of limitations. And of course, 
in not limiting God, in knowing that throughout the scriptures, we have this description of God, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord who is mighty in battle. With God, everything is possible. This, of course, like unites our hearts into this giant worship song of praise where we know that we can come to the one who has infinite strength and control and find both food and sustenance for our souls, but everything that we need for life that he is providing that which is necessary for us because he is powerful to affect it in a way that is for our good and for his glory. Yeah. And you know, this is one of those uh, things that again, people, it may sound like this is a weird sort of like quirky thing, but when you actually start to think about how God is presented in the Bible and then what, what it is we confess to be true about God, it starts to just click. It just makes sense. And like, here's, here's sort of a weird example The word providence, which we mostly think about in terms of God's ability to accomplish things, right? God's providence is that he plans and brings about, brings to pass his, his will. The word actually means foresight. So, so God's knowledge, God's ability to see and know the future or the, the reality of what is to come to pass and his ability to, um, to accomplish his will and to, to plan and cause to be what it is he desires to come to pass, even linguistically, those two things are interrelated with each other. So, I I mean, I think this is one of those topics where this is one of those wells Christians can come back to again and again and again. And, And even when we talk about divine simplicity, the beauty of divine simplicity as it relates to these omni attributes is it means that God is fully present with all of his attributes and all of his potencies in every place and every time, right? no matter what. And what we can say is God is never absent at any place or any time. And, and all of the places that he is not absent from, he, he is there with all of his potency and all of his knowledge. And that all works because his potency and his knowledge, they are him. And so anywhere he's present, all of him is present. And nowhere that he's absent, none of him is absent. Right. So it's it's important because as Christians, we often I think sometimes we get the most discouraged in our faith. If you think about like um, the way we express our discouragement and our laments in reference to God, even in the Bible, even in the Psalms, we ask questions like, where are you, God? Right. Where is God? We, we lament our own discouragement by kind of appealing to this perceived absence of God. But what we can do, and this, Psalm 139 is actually an example of this. This is a psalm where, where David is basically comforting himself by appealing to the fact that even when it seems like God is absent or when it seems like God is not sure of what the wicked are doing, he doesn't know what the wicked are doing, or it seems like he can't stop the wicked from doing what they're doing, we can retreat back into the reality of God's omnipresence. We can retreat back into the reality of his omniscience and his omnipotence and and the other omni attributes, his omnibenevolence, that no matter where God is and no matter what God does, he is, he is goodness itself, that there is nothing good that God is not in terms of his, his fundamental nature. And we can retreat back into these omni, omni attributes because we confess that this is what the Bible teaches. And so right. even when we feel like that's not true, we can now rely and hold fast on the confession of faith that we have that asserts the contrary to what our emotions and our context and our situation might be telling us. And that should be a really big source of comfort for the Christian. It was a comfort to David in Psalm 139. 
Right. It was a comfort to Jesus uh, at the graveside of Lazarus when he said, Father, I know you always hear my prayers, right? That's a, that's a statement of God's omniscience. I mean, it's mm-hmm. obviously a little bit different coming from the lips of Jesus, but any time that we assert that God is capable and present and, and knows our plight and desires to do something about it, we're actually retreating to these omni-attributes as a source of comfort for us. And so that's that's what I love about doing theology, is when you really start to dig into it and you see how, how good technical doctrinal theology cannot be divorced from practical application of that technical theology, it becomes this immense source of comfort and peace for the Christian. And I hope that people can sort of see that as as we run through this attribute uh, episode here. Oh, I'm seeing it and I'm loving it. I'm totally with you on that. It's good to remember that God is basically for us in these attributes. Right. It's why, in essence, that he's communicated them to us so that we might worship him. But also we derive, especially through Jesus Christ, of course, great benefit from these attributes that they're not communicable to us as we talked about in the same way. And yet we are the great beneficiaries of them because as a loving father, he uses these again to glorify himself and to provide and to meet the needs of his children. And so it is interesting that when you look to the Psalms and you see that of these massive prayers and these songs of worship that something like, you know, like 40% of them are like laments, which maybe is in some way, like we should draw from that and say like how many of our own hymns, like are 40% like laments, you have people basically challenging these attributes, so to speak, and God sends comfort through them again. And even Jesus Christ is quoting the Psalms when he says, God, why father, why have you forsaken me? And so then we we see the sweetness of God rising forth in his omnipotence, his power to raise uh, his son from the dead in his foreknowledge and foreordination represented omniscience. And of course, this amazing presence of God, even in the grave of Christ, even over the waters through the Holy Spirit. My goodness, it, what a great God we have. Yeah. There is no one like our God. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's absolutely the truth. Well, Jesse, this is definitely not the last um, sort of theology proper part of this ongoing series we're going to do. We'll be back next uh, next week with more uh, more good discussion about some of this indiscussable type theology that we <laughs> can't describe, but we're going to do our best anyways. So don't forget that we've got these contests going. You can uh, win a copy of Expository Preaching uh, in the Blessings of the Faith series uh, if you go to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest or reformbrotherhood.com slash 260. And um, make sure you share this episode with a friend, because I, I think... This is the kind of theology that the church really needs to do, especially in this sort of uncertain time. I mean, I know we've like railed against using the language of uncertain times. It's uncertain to us, not uncertain to God. But that's the that's the beauty of it, right? That's actually the comfort is that even though it's very uncertain to us, it's very shaky to us, it's not uncertain or unknown to God. And that's why Amen. I think right now, as more than any other time in, in my life, the church really needs to understand and lean into this kind of theology. It's because we need this stability from God because things in our world right now are so unstable. Even in the church, there's churches dividing over masks and vaccines and and whether right. or not we should read this guy's book or that guy's book or whether or right. not, you know, critical race theory. I mean, 
all those are worthy discussions to have. I don't want to don't want to minimize those, but it's a great a great sense of uncertainty and instability in the church. And I think that being able to retreat into the utter stability of God, that's an attribute we don't talk about, but like the state, the stability of God, the, the lack of movement within, within God is actually a great source of comfort. So I hope that this has been encouraging to people. And I hope that uh, you share this episode with a friend who, who might not have thought about things this way before. Well, Tony, I think obviously wrapped it up. I thought you were going to take us all the way home, but I'm happy to get us started in this way until next time. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.